The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash JUQ860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Hello, everybody. I'm really excited to go introduce our special session tonight on translating progress with immunotherapies and targeted agents in improved outcomes for patients with triple negative breast cancer. I'm Henry Kerr. I'm a surgeon in FD Anderson. I'd like to introduce Dr. Heather MacArthur, who's um, a medical oncologist and also the clinical director of the Breast Cancer Program and Coleman Distinguished Chair at UT Southwestern Medical Center. During this time, we're going to have a masterclass in practicum, harnessing the potential of the latest treatment advances with immunotherapies and targeted agents in triple negative breast cancer. This will be a case-based discussion of how we implement multidisciplinary care and best practice in triple negative breast cancer. I start this slide, I thought it was interesting pulling our slides. This is a slide from 24 years ago at this meeting in the spring, the Society of Surgical Oncology. So we've known for a long time that we have patients with an exceptional response to neoadjuvant systemic therapy. We now know, and I don't have to tell a group of um, physicians like yourself on the indications for neoadjuvant systemic therapy, but certainly it's locally advanced breast cancer, operable but regional advanced disease. But there's been a great shift over the last several years in offering this systemic therapy to operable breast cancer. It is certainly preferred for greater than T2 and node positive disease. And I want to call your attention to the NCCN guidelines saying that for clinical T1C, N0, triple negative breast cancer and HER2 positive disease, we should consider this approach as well. You know, during the Society of Surgical Oncology meeting quite a long time ago, we showed that you could have a complete pathologic response in 12% of patients with locally advanced breast cancer, that is the breast and the nodes. What was very clear at that time is that those patients with complete pathologic response do extremely well. This was rudimentary chemotherapy regimen, only four. But the big paradigm, and which has changed everything in the last two and a half decades, is that we identify a group of patients who are not going to do well if they have invasive breast cancer left in the breast of the nodes. And that's where you'll see we've made some amazing strides in the care of patients, particularly in patients with triple negative breast cancer. At that time of the meeting, we never heard of the word triple negative breast cancer. We did have estrogen receptor. HER2 new had not come into uh, our understanding for earlier stage breast cancer and the anti-HER2 agents. But what was clear from this initial study at MD Anderson is that patients with ER negative disease were nine times more likely to have a complete pathologic response. This has been replicated, of course, and this is the uh, residual cancer burden from the iSPY clinical uh, research uh, collaborative among 1,700 patients. It's not just the patients who have some disease, but it depends, their prognosis will depend on, for example, residual cancer burden as high as uh, three, and you can see their survival, their event-free survival is extremely low 
in 20%. We all know now through over 10,000 patients and this meta-analysis that this PCR as an independent predictor on overall survival is uh, clearly in triple negative breast cancer as well as HER2 new positive breast cancer. We know as surgeons, again, not having to tell you that it changes the morbidity associated with our surgeries, not only converting locally advanced breast cancer to operable disease, but we've had successive um, less and less surgery. And now, just not just sentinel lymph node, but targeted axillary dissection for patients with node-positive breast cancer, where we can even eliminate axillary lymph node dissection in some of those patients. Finally, because of these increasing pathologic complete response rates, it begs the question, do we need any surgery at all if the patient is going to have systemic therapy up front and they have such a high rate of residual, no residual disease? And I just mentioned um, our phase two multi-center trial at MD Anderson for eliminating breast cancer surgery in exceptional responders with neogen systemic therapy. This trial has closed as of last year, and it was open to HER2 new positive patients with operable breast cancer less than five centimeters and triple negative breast cancers. They had very selective criteria um, with image-guided biopsy, with the disease having to be smaller than two centimeters, those patients without any residual disease went on to just radiotherapy, no surgery. We just reviewed the um, follow-up on these patients as a Wednesday, and the medium follow-up at 18 months. We have not had any recurrences. So early information, but this is in some patients where it might be moving. I also call your attention to the NCC and recommendations around um, making sure that if we're going to biopsy the breast and lymph nodes, certainly we've got to put a clip there to, especially if there's disease in the axilla, to ensure that it's removal at the time of uh, sentinel lymph node biopsy and or targeted axillary dissection. And uh, I think everyone in this audience is aware that this has been a bridge for us. This is Dr. Caudill's paper from MD Anderson, a bridge from us op doing axillary dissection in every patient who presented with node positive disease to just selective. And this has been our approach at Anderson and several places around the world. Again, I want to focus on some landmark trials in early stage disease as it relates to triple negative breast cancer. We're going to review some landmark studies in, on PARP inhibitors, and this is a tumor cell, which I think is a great, a great illustration on all the various ways that we may be able to kill the cancer. Um, and we'll start with PARP inhibitors, talk about the ground vaping group and immunotherapy checkpoint inhibitors, and then finally, a very exciting um, results, initial results for resistant uh, triple negative breast cancer, we're going to be talking about antibody drug conjugates. Let's look at a case. 46-year-old woman with familial breast cancer and ovarian cancer with a known germline uh, BRCA1 mutation. A new left high-grade 1.6 centimeter triple negative breast cancer. Ultrasound of the axilla not suspicious. Keep these questions in mind as you see over here as we go through some of the data. Thank you, Dr. Curer, for setting the, the stage so beautifully. 
You know, until recently, at least on the medical oncology side, um, as you all know, triple negative disease is devastating disease to treat, and we've been dependent entirely on chemotherapeutics. And in the last few years, we have had an unprecedented number of FDA approvals for novel strategies that are more biologically driven. So it's a really incredibly exciting time to be treating triple negative breast cancer specifically. So first, we're going to focus on PARP inhibition. So patients with germline BRCA mutations have defects in DNA repair. So PARP inhibitors also impact DNA repair. So it's like a two-hit mechanism on DNA repair that leads to um, synthetic lethality. And the Olympia trial uh, was a recently reported trial reported at ASCO last year. This is a study where patients with suspected or known germline BRCA-associated breast cancers that were high risk who either received neoadjuvant therapy or were deemed high risk based on their upfront surgery results, and they were randomized to receive a year of Olaparib versus placebo. About 20% of patients in that uh, population had ER-positive disease, so the majority of patients participating in that study had triple-negative disease. And here's the bottom line. Um, The uh, PARP inhibitor improved invasive disease-free survival as early as three years by 8.8%. So that's a huge improvement um, very early on in the course of diagnosis with a 7.1% improvement in distant disease-free survival at three years. And here's what's really exciting is that not only are those diminished recurrences in terms of invasive disease-free survival and distant disease-free survival benefits um, present, but it's translating into improved overall survival as early as three years with a 3.7% improvement that early on. So for the first time, we are able to offer our high-risk patients with germline BRCA mutations a targeted strategy that will actually improve their probability of being alive as early as three years. So very exciting data. And what we saw when we looked at subgroup analyses was that the benefit was consistent across the subgroups that were interrogated, whether it was by type of chemotherapy, when chemotherapy was administered, hormone receptor status, or BRCA1 versus BRCA2, for example. And so ASCO adopted some guidelines recommending that patients with early-stage HER2-negative breast cancer with a high risk of recurrence and a germline BRCA1 or BRCA2 pathologic mutation be offered adjuvant elaparib after completion of neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy and local treatment, including radiation. For those who have surgery first, one year of adjuvant elaparib is offered to patients with triple negative breast cancer who have tumors at least two centimeters in size or who have involved lymph nodes. And for patients who receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy, it should be offered to patients with residual disease. So those are recent updates in the ASCO guidelines. On March 11, 2022, the FDA approved elaparib for the adjuvant treatment of patients with deleterious or suspected deleterious germline BRCA-mutated HER2-negative high-risk early breast cancer who have been treated with neoadjuvant or adjuvant chemotherapy. Patients must be selected for therapy based on an FDA-approved companion diagnostic for elaparib. So at this point, Dr. Kier, so we return to the case, the 46-year-old woman with a known BRCA1 mutation with a 1.6-centimeter triple-negative breast cancer and a unremarkable ultrasound. So what should students know about uh, the changes uh, in recommendations for genetic testing? So the new NCCN guidelines 
state that for all triple negative breast cancers, they, because of these new results, they should be uh, tested for high penetrant uh, genes, including BRCA1 and 2. Uh, neoadjuvant chemo or surgery first. <clears throat> I think uh, at MD Anderson, um, we, would, we would definitely move with neoadjuvant um, chemotherapy uh, for this patient since she's definitely going to need systemic therapy. And I guess, you know, really, what adjuvant therapy would you recommend? And, and, and maybe it's dependent on what you find at the time of surgery. So I typically treat pretty much all of my patients with early-stage triple-negative breast cancer with neoadjuvant therapy in light of the PARP inhibitor data that I just showed you for our germline BRCA-associated tumors, as well as the opportunity for adjuvant capecitabine, and I'll show you some data now in support of immune therapy. But we have seen several publications, including one in JCO several years ago, showing that even T1A and T1B node negative, uh, triple negative breast cancer has a high risk of recurrence if they are not treated with chemotherapy. So it really has become a standard of care in my practice. And why not use that information up front, the degree of response to inform downstream decision making? So here are the NCCN recommendations about testing. Um, they recommend testing to aid in treatment decisions around PARP inhibitors and to um, aid in adjuvant treatment decisions for uh, PARP inhibitors and in triple negative breast cancer specifically. So increasing use of genetic testing um, for this high-risk patient population. Case two, 30-year-old healthy woman without a family history is diagnosed with a left triple negative infiltrating ductal carcinoma with lymphovascular invasion, grade three. This is 4.5 centimeters inside. Ultrasound shows one abnormal node, biopsy-proven metastases, and clip placed in both the primary and the breast. Please go ahead and keep some of these questions in mind as we go through the further presentation. Thank you. So at this point, I'd like to review some updates on immune therapy for the treatment of triple-negative breast cancer. And the reason why we in medical oncology have been so excited about the application of immune therapy for breast cancer is this early experience looking at monotherapy in triple-negative breast cancer, advanced stage 4 triple-negative breast cancer. And what you can see from these spider plots, looking at atezolizumab or pembrolizumab, so two different immune therapy drugs, um, these horizontal lines indicating unprecedented durable responses because historically the life expectancy of metastatic triple negative breast cancer is 12 to 18 months. So to have durable responses that are lasting months or even years have really been unprecedented and led to a lot of excitement about these strategies. And the idea is that if you can harness a person's immune system to recognize their own cancer, that it could develop anti-tumor memory and activity and uh, control and even eradicate disease. So that's why we've been so excited. But unfortunately, what we've also learned, and this is triple negative metastatic breast cancer data, is that only about 25% of patients will respond to uh, checkpoint blockade as monotherapy if it's given in the first-line setting. And if you give it in the second line or beyond, it's even more modest than that, about 5%. So we've learned that the earlier on that you apply these immune therapy strategies, the more likely they are to work. 
And we've also learned that although chemotherapy can be immune suppressive, the right drugs in the right doses at the right time can actually induce T-cell infiltration into tumors. And a lot of the drugs that we commonly use to treat breast cancer actually can have this effect. So it might be that chemotherapy, the right chemotherapy, could be a perfect partner for immune therapy. And so I'd like to share with you one of my early experiences uh, treating a patient when I was at Sloan Kettering in uh, 2013. I had a patient who presented to me. She was a colleague, a 32-year-old woman, who presented with stage 2A disease, 3 centimeters, grade 3, triple negative breast cancer. We treated her with curative intent, chemotherapy, which at that time was dose-dense ACT, she had a good response to chemotherapy, but not a complete response. And Dr. Kerr just showed you um, the prognostic impact of not achieving a complete response. Um, but at that time, we didn't have any pivot point. We didn't have anything that we could offer to patients who didn't achieve a complete response to neoadjuvant chemotherapy. So she received standard of care radiation, and she was ultimately put on surveillance, which was the standard of care at that time. And sadly, within less than a year, she developed a local recurrence. And so she underwent mastectomy, and she received curative intent chemotherapy consistent with the data at that time. This time, the chemotherapy was gemcitabine with carboplatin. And unfortunately, within a few months of completing that chemotherapy, she became short of breath. Um, so we did a PET scan, and unfortunately, it was suspicious for lung and lymph node metastasis. We did what we always do, which is we biopsy a distant site um, to confirm a diagnosis of metastatic breast cancer. And unfortunately, her distant biopsy confirmed uh, metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And I was, quite frankly, very distraught because I had used at that point dose-dense ACT, gemcitabine cardiboplatin. I had used all my best chemotherapeutic agents, and I knew that if I applied chemotherapeutics that were less likely to be responsive, that this woman would probably die within three to six months. So I was devastated. Um, I was able to pick up the phone and call my friend Sylvia Adams at NYU, who was able to enroll her on a trial. This is a phase one trial, so this is one of the first trials looking at immune therapy um, in this case, in the form of atezolizumab, together with chemotherapy in the form of NAB paclitaxel, and she enrolled her on the trial, and you can see in red um, lymph node metastases and in blue um, lung metastasis. These were her baseline scans, and within two cycles, her lung metastases dissolved, but her lymph node metastases appeared to be progressing. Fortunately, the trial allowed for her to continue with therapy on trial, and after four cycles, she had complete resolution of her disease. So unfortunately, one of the issues that we all face, and this is a multidisciplinary challenge, is the immune-related adverse events that can occur with these agents. And they can be um, while on treatment, and they can even be delayed even a year after last exposure to immune therapy. And she unfortunately had two episodes of pneumonitis. The second episode of pneumonitis uh, necessitated that she come off the study. So she came off study, and she actually was not challenged with any additional drugs. It was decided because she had no evaluable disease to just watch her. And it's now more than six years since her diagnosis, and she remains without a valuable disease, um, without any systemic therapy. And I told you before that the life expectancy for metastatic triple negative breast cancer is 12 to 18 months. 
So the fact that there is a woman like this who's six years out from her metastatic diagnosis, biopsy confirmed, and doesn't require any systemic therapy and has no evidence disease is really an unprecedented experience. And it gives me hope that we might actually be able to use the word cure in discussing metastatic disease, which historically we haven't been able to do. So there are a number of patient experiences like this. I share this one just because I think it's a great illustration with long-term follow-up. But we all have patients like this who have done extremely well in the long-term um, having been treated with immune therapy, and that's the incredible promise. That led to the Keynote 355 study, the study that I just showed you in several other studies. This was a study looking at first-line treatment with chemotherapy with or without immune therapy for metastatic triple-negative breast cancer. This was a first-line study. Patients were randomized to physician's choice of chemo with either pembrolizumab or placebo. And here's the bottom line. There was a seven-month improvement in overall survival in favor of immune therapy. Again, contextually, I know I'm a broken record, but life expectancy of 12 to 18 months for this population to see a seven-month improvement in overall survival in this population is unprecedented and ultimately led to the FDA approval of pembrolizumab for metastatic triple-negative breast cancer. So whenever we have innovation in the metastatic setting, we often move those strategies into the curative intent setting to see if we can improve on cure rates. And that's what the Keynote 522 study aimed to do. This is a study that enrolled essentially patients with stage two or three triple negative breast cancer and randomized them to receive neoadjuvant chemotherapy with either placebo or pembrolizumab. And for the patients randomized to the immune therapy arm, the pembrolizumab arm, they continued to receive pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting for an additional nine cycles. A lot of chemotherapy in this regimen, a taxane, a platinum, anthracycline, and cyclophosphamide. Um, and uh, that was the standard of care. And the addition of the immune therapy to that four cytotoxic chemotherapy backbone improved pathologic complete response by 14%. And it was an improvement that was observed regardless of PDL1 status. So PDL1 um, being a target potentially for immune therapy and is an important um, prognosticator or predictor of effect in the metastatic setting. But here the effect was agnostic of PDL1 status. So both patients with PDL1 positive and PDL1 negative tumors derive benefit. And what was incredibly exciting with more than three years of follow-up, we've seen a 7.7% improvement in event-free survival, indicating that we are actually um, making big inroads in curing triple negative breast cancer. So this is really an unprecedented, exciting result and led to the FDA approval of pembrolizumab in the curative intense setting for high-risk triple negative breast cancer. And what was really remarkable was the magnitude of the benefit for patients who do not achieve a pathologic complete response. You can see here a more than 10% improvement in event-free survival and cure rates for patients who don't achieve a pathologic complete response. So as stated earlier, we've known for a long time that the inability to achieve a pathologic complete response has a negative prognostic impact but historically, we haven't been able to do anything about it until these uh, recent successful drug developments. So really exciting to see a huge benefit, even in that extremely high-risk population. And the benefit has been very consistent when we've interrogated different subsets from this study. So 
hazard ratios have been approaching 0.6 um, for all subsets. So for the uh, node positive and node negative, both populations have hazard ratios approaching 0.6, indicating that the relative benefit is similar for those two subgroups. The absolute benefit is bigger for the higher risk node positive population, but the relative benefit is similar for both as evidenced by the hazard ratio. And we see the same when we look at disease stage, very similar hazard ratio approaching 0.6, so indicating a relative reduction that's very similar regardless of disease stage, but the higher risk stage three population has an bigger absolute benefit. So similar relative benefit, but bigger absolute benefit in the higher risk populations. And what kind of events are we preventing? We're preventing distant recurrences. So 7.7% of patients in the pembrolizumab arm ex experienced a distant recurrence versus 13.1% in the placebo arm. And that's what's translating into not just event-free survival improvements, that prevention of distant recurrences is improving overall survival. And this to me is really remarkable, an almost 3% improvement in survival as early as three years after diagnosis. That's really remarkable. So not just preventing recurrences, not just preventing events, but actually improving life expectancy for our high-risk patients. So in July of 2021, the FDA approved pembrolizumab for high-risk early-stage triple-negative breast cancer together with chemotherapy as neoadjuvant therapy and then as continued single-agent adjuvant therapy after surgery. So this became a new standard of care. A question that I get a lot, um, having been on the steering committee of the Keynote 522 uh, effort, was uh, pertaining to radiation um, and when should radiation be administered with respect to the adjuvant pembrolizumab administration. So what was allowed on study was that if postoperative radiation was indicated, the adjuvant pembrolizumab may be started concurrently with radiation or two weeks after radiation therapy. And we haven't yet seen the data from the Keynote 522 study to tell us what choices physicians made around that. So we don't yet know how many patients um, received concurrent versus sequential uh, radiation, although there is quite a bit of data um, from the metastatic setting indicating that immune therapy with radiation may be incredibly synergistic. And here's an example of one such effort. This is a study that we had uh, for patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. My uh, colleague, Ellis Hope, and I uh, designed this study, and essentially we were... Um, Sorry, we enrolled patients who were referred for palliative radiation. So in this case, what I have circled there is a large uh, breast mass, and you can see she also has a lot of central lung and lymph node metastasis. But this breast mass that's circled in red was about to break through the skin, and so she was referred for palliative radiation for that breast primary. And so we enrolled her on a trial where we co-administered immune therapy in the form of pembrolizumab together with radiation. And you can see that not only did the radiation work in treating the breast mass, but she had complete resolution of all of her other sites of metastases. And we had a number of cases like this where they had 100% complete responses that were durable. So there's quite a bit of data um, from this and other studies indicating that immune therapy and radiation may be synergistic. Um, and we have yet to see whether that story holds true in the curative intent setting. 
I would like to point out, though, that there are recent guidelines um, that we developed together with the Society of Immunotherapy of Cancer. These are evidence-based guidelines for the application of immune therapy for the treatment of breast cancer, both in the curative intent and the metastatic settings. So those are published and available online for your review. And this is the algorithm that I have adopted. This is not um, data-driven. This is my own biases. So take it with a grain of salt. Um, but we, we don't have data to inform all decisions, but yet we have to make decisions tomorrow in clinic. Um, and so extrapolating from the existing data, um, this is how I'm approaching these patients. So in all my patients with high-risk triple negative breast cancer, I am treating them with neoadjuvant chemotherapy together with immune therapy in the form of pembrolizumab. Then when they go to surgery, there's a decision based on their ability to achieve a pathologic complete response or not. Right now, if patients have achieved a pathologic complete response, then I do treat them with pembrolizumab. That's the FDA approval for nine additional cycles in the adjuvant setting. However, it's worth noting that the cooperative groups are planning um, studies in the space because it begs the question, if they've already achieved a pathologic complete response, do they really need any additional therapy? And so studies looking at nine cycles of additional pembrolizumab versus not are planned. And so I hope to um, be able to contribute to those studies. Um, the patients who don't achieve a pathologic complete response, those are our highest risk patients who do require additional therapy. So if they have a germline BRCA mutation, I do consider a laparib for that population based on the Olympia data that I showed you. We have data from the metastatic setting looking at a couple different PARP inhibitors together with immune therapy with no concerning safety signal when they're co-administered. So in that population, I would treat them with, an, uh, with Olaparib together with pembrolizumab. For those who don't have a germline BRCA-associated cancer, I would consider capecitabine. We have the CREATE-X data and meta-analyses showing an overall survival advantage for patients who receive adjuvant capecitabine if they have residual triple negative breast cancer. And we have data from uh, my mentee, David Page in Providence um, and others showing that capecitabine and immune therapy can be safely co-administered in the metastatic setting. So I think it's a reasonable extrapolation to co-administer those two drugs given the overall survival advantage observed in those independent trials. But of course, these are extrapolations because the Keynote 522 regimen did not allow for concurrent PARP inhibitor or capecitabine administration. Um, so those are extrapolations. And based on the radiation immune therapy data from the metastatic setting, um, we've observed that they can be co-administered safely. And so in my patients, I am recommending radiation to be administered together with pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. Okay, returning to case two, discussion. 30-year-old healthy woman without a family history. She has a 4.5 centimeter mass. She did not, oh, she did have an, one abnormal node, biopsy proven metastasis clip placed in both the primary and the breast. So obviously this patient would have genetic counseling and testing. Preoperative therapy, I think we, we all agreed that she's an optimal um, candidate, and I think we're, we will just go with the, the new standard. Um, there were there are several questions around, you know, which patients 
would we not give that regimen? But I think we should go answer that more in the question and answer. Um, with this patient, what surgery? Uh, you know, uh, she's she's obviously does not have a germline mutation. Uh, we would offer her breast conserving therapy. She has one node. We would remove that node with targeted axillary dissection. Um, if I um, I'm following her response, actually the breast imaging, um, more or less we get it at the beginning, middle, and right prior to surgery for surgical planning. Personally, I would offer her a targeted axillary dissection, even if the lymph node still appeared abnormal, because it's about um, 40 to 50 percent of those cases don't have any disease left. Um, I, what, I, what has changed in my practice, and particularly at MD Anderson, um, is we are doing lymphovenous bypass. Our microsurgical uh, colleagues in plastic surgery are, are offering that procedure along with us doing the axillary reverse mapping. So I would have a plastic and reconstructive surgeon um, available uh, for this particular patient. So th this is, again, for, um, as a surgeon trying to think about so what happens if we do have nodal disease left? What, you know, in this particular patient, are we just going to go with um, nine cycles of Pembro and the capsidamine, both concurrent? Yeah, that yeah. comes up. Yeah. And I think um, it's clear that you can give radi radiotherapy con concurrently or after, but you're advocating for my own biases from, again, um, several studies that we've done in the metastatic setting looking at concurrent radiation administration. I, I mean, the idea is basically twofold. Radiation does a couple things. It causes inflammation, so it brings immune cells into the tumor environment, but it also breaks down the tumor into tiny fragments that might be more easily digested by the immune cells. So if you boost the immune system with drugs like pembrolizumab and uh, break down tumors into more digestible pieces, it makes sense, at least in my mind, that those yeah. would be um, synergistic in terms of uh, establishing long-term tumor-specific immune memory, and that's the, that's yeah. the power. And, and, and there was a presentation today by Dr. Julia Chow at Penn, which looked at exactly that scenario, and she did find some compelling results. So can we move on to the next slide? Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Um, so I just wanted to take a moment to touch on the issue of immune therapy toxicity, because it is a challenge that affects all of it. As I said previously, Immune-related adverse events can occur while patients are on treatment, but they can also occur in a delayed fashion. So you can have a new immune-related adverse event even as late as a year after last exposure. So it might be that a patient presents to your clinic for routine surgical follow-up, haven't seen their medical oncologist for several months, and pre presents with severe fatigue, for example. And together, we have to think about how we're going to work up those patients and think about them. So um, any system can be affected by an overactive immune system. Um, basically, these immune drugs are taking the brakes off the checkpoints, the, the regulations that keep the immune cells in check. And that's what allows for a robust uh, immune response to tumor. But of course, 
those immune cells are not uh, tumor-specific, and they can affect any organ system, endocrine, respiratory, liver, renal, so on and so forth. So it really requires tremendous vigilance when administering these drugs because any system can be affected. The timing is really different than what we experience with chemotherapy administration. It's very variable. And as I said earlier, they can occur weeks, months, even a year after the last treatment. So it requires ongoing vigilance even after treatment is completed. And with novel combinations, the, uh, the timing can be even more variable. This is a typical pattern that we see. Typically, rash is, if it occurs, is the first immune-related adverse event to occur, and then diarrhea, and then the other um, opathies, the endocrinopathies, the uh, hepatitis, pneumonitis, tend to occur um, months after exposure. But there is a huge degree of variability that can occur even after first dose. And I just want to go back to the Keynote 522 experience. Uh, again, again, this was neoadjuvant chemotherapy with four cytotoxic agents with either pembrolizumab or placebo. The pembrolizumab is outlined here in blue, and the orange is the uh, placebo arm. And you can see that there are more infusion reactions. There's a very consistent rate of Hypothyroidism. Hypothyroidism is the most common immune-related adverse event that we see with these drugs, typically about 15 to 20%, and it was 15.1% in this study, so very consistent with our other experiences. Less common is hyperthyroidism, typically around 5%. And then all the other issues that we see with these drugs are much less common, um, but they still occur, and they can require a lifetime of treatment. Adrenal insufficiency, for example, can be devastating when it occurs, an incidence of 2.6% in this study, but it requires a lifetime of steroid replacement, and the symptoms can be uh, very severe. So it really requires a lot of vigilance. Thyroiditis, hypophysitis, colitis, and hepatitis can also occur, but fortunately less commonly. And I just wanted to... Uh, pick a figure that I think illustrates how diverse the toxicity can be with these drugs. As you can see here, these are patients who have immune-related uh, rashes, and you can see how different uh, they can be. So it's not just one pattern of rash, and it just, for me, underscores how diverse the toxicity can be across patients. I just wanted to conclude the discussion today to give you a sense of what's on the horizon. So we've talked about PARP inhibitors. We've talked about immune therapy. That's really become a, those two drugs have become standards of care for early triple negative breast cancer. But I wanted to just take a moment to tell you a little bit about what's happening with antibody drug conjugates. These are drugs that are connected to an antibody, the antibody directed to a tumor target. And they're connected by a linker that releases the drug once the antibody has connected. And it's really an exciting um, uh, novel mechanism and novel strategy. And I just want to tell you about a couple drugs. Uh, the ASCENT study was a study looking at a antibody drug conjugate called Sazituzumab govitecan. This is a trope 2 targeted antibody drug conjugate. This is in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. And in this study, patients with triple negative breast cancer were randomized to receive the antibody drug conjugate versus physician's choice chemotherapy. And you can see here 
Um, you don't need to be a statistician, I don't think, to appreciate the difference between those curves for progression-free survival and overall survival. So the hazard ratio for overall survival, 0.48, indicating there's a more than 50% reduction in the risk of death uh, in favor of the antibody drug conjugate. So this is a really exciting uh, space. Again, only a few years ago, we were entirely dependent on chemotherapeutics for the treatment of triple negative breast cancer. And now we have PARP inhibitors, immune therapy, and now antibody drug conjugates because the FDA approved based on this data that I just showed you, Sazituzumab, Govitikin for advanced or metastatic triple negative breast cancer who had received two or more prior systemic therapies. So a really exciting time to have so many new FDA approvals um, that are biologically driven for patients with triple negative breast cancer. I wanted to tell you as well about another drug that's trope 2 targeted, so the same um, target as the uh, sazituzumab that I just showed you. This one is called Dato DXD, um, and it also targets trope 2. And in studies looking at this drug, you can see with these waterfall plots, all of the um, patient experiences, all the responses um, are favorable, as indicated by this waterfall. So another very exciting antibody drug conjugate that targets, again, trope 2, which is almost ubiquitously expressed on triple negative breast cancers. So sazituzumab is an FDA-approved trope 2 targeting antibody drug conjugate for pretreated patients with metastatic triple negative breast cancer. There are ongoing studies with sazituzumab in combination with targeted therapies as well as immune therapies in the curative intent setting in early breast cancer. So these are coming um, fast and furious into the forefront and I think offer an, a really exciting opportunity to refine our treatment strategies for this patient population. Dato DXD is another trope 2 targeting antibody drug conjugate that's demonstrated impressive clinical activity in pre-treated metastatic breast cancer and is also being moved up earlier in the course of disease. I also want to tell you about trastuzumab DRUX-TCAN very briefly. So this is an uh, antibody drug conjugate that targets HER2. The antibody is a HER2 target, and it has been um, explored in patients not only with HER2-positive disease, but also in patients who have HER2 low disease with impressive activity. Um, so there will be a, a challenge for us going forward to rethink how we categorize breast cancer. It won't be three different categories anymore because it's going to create this subset of triple negative breast cancers that are HER2 low expressing. And what's really exciting about that drug is that it has a bystander effect. So not only does it kill the cell that has the target, it gets leaked into the surrounding area to kill neighboring cells. And why is that so exciting? Because it overcomes the challenge of heterogeneity, and we've all seen this, patients with HER2-positive disease that become HER2-negative, for example. And that's because, in part, of heterogeneous cell populations. It's not the same cell over and over again. So to have drug strategies that have this bystander effect that can kill not just the um, targeted cell, but all of the cancer cells in the neighboring area is really potentially very powerful. So there's a lot of excitement around uh, that antibody drug conjugates and others that have bystander effects. There are multiple other targeted therapies in development 
right now that target key genomic pathways and antigens that are overexpressed in breast cancer, including triple negative breast cancer. And again, the whole label of triple negative breast cancer tells us everything about what the cancer isn't about, but doesn't tell us anything about what it is about. And it's really a heterogeneous um, subset of breast cancer. And now with unique biologic insights, we have increasing understanding about what drives um, the subsets of triple negative breast cancer. So here's a summary roadmap for the treatment of early stage triple negative breast cancer for patients with um, stage two or three disease. They receive the Keynote 522 regimen in the form of paclitaxel with carboplatin followed by AC chemotherapy together with pembrolizumab and then receive pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting. Patients with T1C disease and zero disease might also be considered with, um, pardon me, for chemotherapy with immune therapy, so plus or minus immune therapy for that population. In my practice, they might receive um, a chemotherapy backbone um, with fewer agents than was administered in the Keynote 522. So for example, a taxane with a platinum. Um, and I would consider immune therapy for that population. The T1AB uh, N0 can go for upfront surgery and can be considered for chemotherapy thereafter, typically with a taxane platinum-based regimen. As I showed you earlier, patients who achieve a pathologic complete response, uh, the current standard is to receive nine additional cycles of pembrolizumab, although, as I pointed out, the cooperative groups are planning studies looking at randomizing that potentially good prognosis population to the standard of care, which is the nine cycles of pembrolizumab versus no further therapy. So mm -hmm. that will be a really important effort. And then for those who do not achieve a pathologic complete response, if they have a germline BRCA mutation, then Olaparib should be considered and can be administered in my mind concurrently with pembrolizumab, although that was not permitted on study. Those who do not achieve a pathologic complete response who do not have a germline BRCA mutation could be considered for adjuvant capecitabine, which again could potentially be co-administered with pembrolizumab. So that's the current increasingly complicated but exciting uh, roadmap for early stage triple negative breast cancer. And uh, I hope you'll agree that with these survival advantage uh, advantages that we've shown you with these various studies that uh, we really are finally making headway for this high-risk population. Thank you very much, Dr. MacArthur. We have we have a lot of um, a lot of questions on um, some of the side effects, uh, but I'll start with the first question, which I think is 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 really irrelevant. Um, someone who's in a community practice, all of this new information. Uh, the patient is seeing them first in, in, you know, in their surgical practice. How do, how do, what should they do to, to integrate if they have a triple negative breast cancer? How, do they, how are they going to work with the team? Well, I think for triple negative breast cancer, um, they should be referred to medical oncology up front so that decisions can be made about whether they're an appropriate candidate for neoadjuvant therapy because, again, with the survival advantages seen with these various strategies for patients with residual disease, it is increasingly helping us to decide who needs more treatment and who um, could potentially get away with less treatment. Because, um, of course, we want to improve cure rates, but we also want to 
um, mitigate toxicity whenever possible. So that's always the balance that we're trying to strike. And I, I really think these are multidisciplinary decisions that can't be made in isolation. The next question, um, so in S is, can you combine the PARP inhibitors with the checkpoint inhibitors to increase the PCR rates in patients with germline BRCA mutations? So in Olympia, where Olaparib was administered for a year in that high-risk, triple-negative, uh, and high-risk ER-positive population, most of the patients having triple-negative disease, um, those patients did not receive concurrent immune therapy. So we really don't have the data to directly inform insights uh, as to co-administration. However, we do know from the Tapasio and Mediola studies in the metastatic setting that those drugs can be co-administered safely. So in this high-risk population, my strategy is always to err on the side of over-treating rather than under-treating. And given that um, there's established toxicity um, with no concerning signals with co-administration in the metastatic setting, I think at this time, until we have that um, specific data in the curative intent setting, I think it's reasonable to co-administer. There's another question around, um, could we just give a PARP inhibitor alone to someone with a germline uh, BRCA mutation, and have there been studies? There have been uh, several studies, but one that was presented at um, ASCO using telaparib um, monotherapy um, alone had a PCR rate in around um, 46%. Um, there's more kind of questions around, is there any, you know, what's the biologic uh, rationale for both of the agents, pre, pre-op versus adjuvant? It's kind of a complicated question. It, it is a complicated question. There have been a number of neoadjuvant PARP inhibitor studies. Um, the reason why it might be exciting to combine PARP inhibitors with immune therapy in the adjuvant setting, however, is that um, with the DNA repair deficiencies associated with germline BRCA mutated associated cancers that are enhanced with the PARP inhibition, that you might have better uh, neoantigen presentation as a result of that DNA defect, and therefore it might be an ideal partner for immune therapy, which can take advantage of that uh, neoantigen presentation. Um, but Right now, um, the immune therapy combination and the adjuvant approval of PARP inhibitors are the FDA-endorsed standard of care. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so I think that enrollment on clinical trials that are exploring novel strategies mm -hmm. would be really important. But right now, that's the, um, the adjuvant PARP inhibitor administration is the standard. There was several questions around uh, with pembrolizumab being the new standard neoadjuvant uh, chemotherapy regimen um, for triple negative breast cancers, high risk triple negative early stage breast cancer. Um, which patients can't you give? Are there any contraindications to checkpoint inhibitors uh, for patients? And is it uh, their performance status? How, are, how, how do we look at that? So there can be a bimodal distribution to triple negative breast cancer with an elderly uh, population, which has a very different biology um, and prognosis. Uh, so in selected elderly patients, it might not be part of the prescription. 
Um, particularly patients, for example, who have uh, large invasive lobular cancers that are triple negative, those often have androgen receptors, for example, and so that's often a strategy that I um, exploit with Casadex, um, for example, in that population. Uh, patients who have a history of autoimmune disease, especially active autoimmune disease, uh, would not typically be considered for um, immune therapy. Um, there's been a lot of work in looking at patients who have HIV, for example, because the concern was that maybe they might not be able to mount a T-cell response to immune therapy, but it looks actually, with the data that we have to date, that actually uh, HIV-positive patients actually do um, um, benefit from immune therapy to the same degree as um, their counterparts. So they were excluded from most of the um, clinical trials looking at these immune therapy strategies, but I would still consider it in that population. So I think someone who has a history of um, se severe or poorly controlled autoimmune disease, I would not consider for um, checkpoint blockade. Someone asked whether uh, preoperative, uh, for example, a carbo uh, regimen versus uh, immune checkpoint type of therapy. Um, are there more delays to surgery, or are they similar types of complications in that regard? Most of the toxicity, as we saw in the Keynote 522 experience in the, in the preoperative setting, came from the chemotherapy backbone, not from the immune therapy. Mm -hmm. So any of the um, delays or toxicity issues that can be incurred with uh, standard neoadjuvant chemotherapy still apply. There don't seem to be any significant additional uh, signals um, that are attributed to the immune therapy administration. So it's, it's, it's really what we're used to dealing with, which is managing um, cytotoxic toxicity before surgery. How about the um, immune-mediated complications like the endocrinopathies, um, hypothyroid adrenal insufficiency? Are, are you or should the surgical oncologist be monitoring anything besides symptoms? There are guidelines for checking things like cortisol at baseline and prior to surgery. So yes, we do need to work together to um, monitor um, some basic blood work beyond um, just symptoms. Um, hypothyroidism, um, that's the most common immune-related adverse event. As I told you, about 15% of patients are affected, and that can require a lifetime of uh, thyroid replacement medication. Hyperthyroidism, about 5%, and that can typically um, be managed with thyroid-directed medication in the short term. Um, but a lot of the um, immune-related adverse events, fortunately, that are rare can be devastating and can be lifelong adrenal insufficiency, hypophysitis, um, and can manifest. I showed that's, that rash slide to kind of underscore how diverse the presentations can be um, with respect to immune-related toxicity. So they're rare events, fortunately, beyond the thyroid issue, but they do require um, multidisciplinary vigilance and early intervention. The earlier you intervene with typically steroids for most of the immune-related adverse events, the non-thyroid immune-related adverse events, um, the more likely you are to get your patient back on track. So early intervention is really critical. So there's a question, switching gears to PARP inhibitor and complications. Someone said that they, they're recalling that there were patients on, you know, in follow-up having nausea. Is that a, 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 a main complication of PARP inhibitors? 
It can be gastrointestinal mm-hmm. side effects, certainly, but um, honestly, they tend to be very well tolerated. So clinically, I haven't had any significant challenges administering PARP inhibitors to my patients. We had a, more questions around complications. Is there any evidence for either the PARP or um, immune a checkpoint inhibitor um, related to a correlation between adverse events and event-free survival? Oh, that's an interesting question. So there is some data, not from the breast cancer literature, but from other tumor types that um, indicated that toxicity actually predicted for improved uh, outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, That hasn't been consistently observed, though, across um, studies, so it's unclear whether um, toxicity is actually a predictor for response. But um, it it is an interesting... It is an interesting... um, Observation. Sorry for that extra noise there. So uh, before we end end the session, uh, Dr. MacArthur, I know was not on on um, triple negative, but someone asked a question about Olaparib for germline um, mutations in hormone positive. Um, is that something with that we're currently doing? Yeah, approximately 20% of patients who participated in the Olympia study had hormone receptor positive disease. And then looking at the four spots, so looking at the benefits and subsets, um, that population derived the same benefit from Olaparib as their triple negative breast cancer counterparts. So it is a um, very effective option for patients with high-risk hormone receptor positive disease. Okay, everyone, I'd like to thank you for coming to the symposium on what's new in triple negative breast cancer. I think it's really exciting, and I've learned a lot. Thank you, Dr. MacArthur, uh, for joining us at the Society of Surgical Oncology. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash J-U-Q-860. This activity is supported through educational grants from AstraZeneca and Merck & Company Incorporated.